Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hey, guess what? We are doing something new and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Do you have burning questions about anything financial that you wish you could have a conversation with us directly about and you'd love to have them answered on the podcast? We've made it super simple for you to ask your questions in a voicemail or an email so that we can answer them live on the show. Go to themoneyadvantage.com and click the link at the top right-hand corner that says, send us a voicemail. You can literally record right on your desktop or on your cell phone that will send us a voicemail right away and we'll be able to include your question on the show. Or if you prefer, email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com with ask us anything in the subject line. We love answering your questions and it's literally the thing that gives us the most energy to be able to provide you the clarity you need to make decisions and move forward. So please do us the honor of sharing your questions. Now, back to the show. All right, Bruce, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. It's just you and I today. We are going to be having an excellent conversation to really address a specific question that we hear over and over again, and it is this, am I too old for privatized banking? Some people say it in a different way. Sometimes they say, I'm a senior. How can I use privatized banking? They say, you know, I wish I learned about this 40 years ago. I would have implemented it then, but probably... I'm too old now. So today we're going to be really addressing and answering that question and helping you understand what the age cutoff is. And we'll kind of give a spoiler alert. There is not, it's not as young as you would think. So today we're going to be talking about what is the way that you can use privatized banking, still have your cash value working for you, still accelerate time and money freedom, and still be able to use privatized banking, even if you are a senior. So let's jump in. Bruce, as we were talking a little bit before the show, you shared something that's really important that I think we always start from this perspective, and it is that it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've been uh, dealing with a couple of things, um, both with my clients and personally, as far as um, things that I think are pretty normal as far as financial education. And I'm realizing that the general population, even people that um, I would think that would be very astute at this, and I'll just say the mortgage industry is one of them. You know, I'm helping my client and they, and the mortgage industry cannot understand, you know, self-employment and, you know, they don't understand an S corporal um, uh, election for your taxes where you are actually an employee of your um, corporation. And I'm also finding that out to be true when people look at life insurance or frankly, any insurance and how it actually works, you know, with deductibles and, you know, uh, limits in life insurance, people look at the simplest thing, the term insurance, and they, and it's a pure cost of insurance. So, you know, they know if I pay $30 a month and I'm a 30 year old, I'm going to get a million dollars of life insurance for the next 20 years of protection. And it's very clear. It's very, very Mm -hmm. clear. When other types of permanent insurance where where you factor in um, investments or interest rate driven products or index driven products, 
in the form of universal life or whole life, people, they, they soon uh, kind of freeze up because they, they can't figure out that part of the, um, it's all, there's always pure uh, insurance inside of those, but sometimes they get paid for differently than term insurance because some of the uh, cost of insurance is being paid for by the actual investment vehicles inside of those uh, particular policies. And so people get really, really confused and they say, well, that does, you know, if I was a 60 year old or if I'm a 50 year old and I want to get term insurance, it's relatively expensive, you know, $200, yeah, $200 a month for maybe $500,000 of coverage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say, I say to them, well, you know, it's a lot of, it's really expensive if you die and leave your estate with no way to actually protect your estate. But, you know, that's another, that's another podcast maybe. But um, so they really think that the older they get, then based on their, their experience with term, because that's the simplest to understand, they will not even pursue uh, insurance strategies. And that, I find that fascinating. I, I, I actually did a policy on my father at age 71. Um, we're actually currently um, putting a policy in place with a person in Massachusetts at age, well, she's 74, but we're backdating it to 73. And they're happy as a lark that they're getting their money in to this policy. And then I have another client who um, is 70. She started hers when she was 72. And yes, she, she's giving up some access to the cash value early, but the reason she was doing it for estate planning purposes. So really, I think what people need to come out of this podcast is that there is not an age that is too high. The insurance agency or the insurance companies, they usually deem 80 as the last time they will take an application. So they obviously think it's valuable to age 80. So really, we need to look at what you're trying to accomplish at what particular age you're trying to accomplish it. Chris, I think this is just a fascinating conversation. And I think you really hit on one of the key pieces that I think is behind the question of, am I too old for privatized banking? So one part of the question is, well, wouldn't the cost of insurance be so high that I just wouldn't have any benefit in starting this policy? So again, that's kind of thinking back to the the framework or the structure of a term policy, which maybe would be really overwhelmingly expensive if you did put that in place when you were starting at age 70 or something like that. And you want to be in a position where, um, hold on. You want to be in a position where there is, you're not having so high of a cost of insurance that it doesn't make sense, but there's a lot more components of a whole life policy than just the cost of insurance. Now, I think the other thing that could partially be behind that question is saying, well, if I am putting my premium into a whole life policy and I want that cash value to grow, will I have time for it to grow considering I'm nearer to the end of my life endpoint than somebody who is say age 20 or 30? So behind that question, those are relevant and logical concerns and they would be probably in any specific position, especially if you were talking about term insurance, but there's so much more happening within a whole life policy for privatized banking that does give tremendous advantages. And Bruce, I really appreciate you sharing right up front the number of people who are well into their 70s who are loving and utilizing whole life insurance. So let's talk about what 
would be the impact on privatized banking if you are older as opposed to being younger? And I know you had some comparisons you wanted to bring for this. Yes. So um, I, I, for, for this particular podcast, uh, and remember, all of these numbers are basically um, proportional uh, going into the future. So example, a 30-year-old, the way we design for $50,000 a year, would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 37700 on what we call our base design uh, of cash value available um, during, the, during that particular year. So about, uh, over 75%. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes a little less, whether they're trying to get permanent, um, whether they're trying to get permanent insurance cost up, whether they're trying to look into the future and want greater returns as interest rates go up, um, so on and so forth. But uh, the cash value available for a 37-year-old after the first year is about, about uh, 35700 Their death benefit- And that's if you're putting in 50000 per 50, year. 50000 right? per year. And the death benefit for that person is a little over $2 million. For a 50-year-old, it's- 37,400, so only about $300 less. So if you're doing it for the infinite banking concept or a place to store your capital, whatever concept you call it, privatized banking or whatever you want to call it, um, you're only, the opportunity cost loss is only $300. Where the greatest loss is, is in death benefit. In this case, it's about half uh, for a 50 year old than what a 30 year old could get. So you can see how the insurance company, the way they the way they allow us to design the paid up additions rider because the paid up insurance is driving um, the cash value, is they say, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll let you actually get paid up insurance at your uh, particular age, and here's the cash value available to use um, as collateral for loans. Um, there's really little difference as far as the amount of money that is available for you. The big difference is the death benefit. And then, of course, as you go into a, a 70-year-old, which is another 20 years of difference, you can expect that to go down by at least half again, so about $500,000. So that is what I was telling uh, or was trying to say at the very beginning. The, the cash value is going to be relatively the same but you're going to lose out on the death benefit. And I think all our listeners would understand that because the risk gets closer and closer to the Mm -hmm. 70-year-old for the life insurance company making a mistake on the mortality tables. And so they can't offer as much death benefit in case there was a mistake. I always tell people, you know, when you really think about term insurance, people, people say, oh, it's I'm just going to, you know, buy term and invest the difference. And I say, why is that? I said, because it's the cheapest. And I say, well, that's interesting. Why would a company for a 30-year-old have a $40 a month, um, a $40 a month premium for a $1 million death benefit and that particular person dies the next day? That's not a very good deal for the life insurance company to get $40 one month and then pay out a million dollars. And I ask the clients, why do you think they do it then? And almost every client says, I have no idea. And I said, that's because they know very, very, very few of those things are ever going to happen. Right. 
So right. It's a very light, low likelihood. So the chance of having to pay out that claim is almost non-existent. I mean, it is possible. That's exactly right. With with a permanent insurance, though, even though it's going to be more for that particular amount of death benefit, they actually know at some time they are going to pay that amount of money out. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that they have to be very, very careful with their mortality tables and and their underwriting to make sure they don't, they don't make a a mistake to actually pay that out prematurely. Just like the term insurance doesn't want to make that mistake to pay out prematurely. So as we go up and get older and older, they actually ratchet down the, um, the death benefit, just like a term insurance would. You know, they, if you try for to the get, same premium cost, I mean, the same premium cost, because exactly. we normally think about it in terms of, well, if I want a million dollars of death benefit, then if I'm 30, it's this cost. And if I'm 50, it's a higher cost. So we think about level death benefit, increasing right. cost. Well, you could think about it the same way. If I put in the same premium dollars, I get this much death benefit. If I'm 30, this much premium dollars, I'm getting a much lesser death benefit if I'm 50. Mm-hmm. And I know we want to talk about, you know, let's just talk briefly. And you, we mentioned, I believe we might do some other podcasts and more in depth. Let's actually, Bruce, really quick. We actually have a question um, okay, that we would like to answer live here. So the question is, isn't the cash value available directly related to the amount of premium paid? And I would say, yes, the cash value is related to the amount of premium that you pay. And, and when you think about it in terms of if you're putting in $50,000 of premium, the cash value, when we think about using it for privatized banking, you are thinking about how much cash value is available in relation to that premium paid. Yeah, Rich, I think one of the things we need to clear up because, um, you know, I'm a student of the way everybody thinks in this industry. And some people say premium to only represent the base part of the policy. So, and right. I, I think most people in our industry use the word premium to represent the entire amount that you may pay for the base policy if it needs a term rider and the paid up additions. So, so whole premium, you could the, say that's the whole premium. The versus whole premium just the that base you can premium. put in, not just the base premium. So, but but there are a significant amount of of uh, producers or agents in this industry that only use the word premium to represent the base part of it. Mm. And so I think this is where it's confusing. Yes. It's very confusing for people. They say, well, you you know, I want to keep the premium low so that I have more cash value. Well, that's confusing to a a person because the industry uses the word premium for the entire amount you can put into it. So I would answer this question as the, um, the amount of cash value is actually proportional to how you design the policy between the base and the PUAs. That would be a, a better way to explain it. I think that's probably getting more to the root of what this question was. So yes. isn't the cash value available directly related to the amount of premium paid? And yes, based on your policy design. So we're looking at a policy design that does maximize early cash value and also long-term growth and is finding that balance point to make sure that this policy performs the best for you today and in the future. And I would also add also for short-term death benefit. 
because uh, yes, maybe the long-term death benefit equals out, but the short-term death benefit um, can be um, can be higher with a higher base. Well, not can be; it will be higher with a higher base death benefit early in the policy. Um, yes, because the dividends continue to buy paid-up additions, you can actually get that to be closer. But here, once again, we're talking about trying to get thirty years of um, predictions of what's going to happen in an illustration. And what we really need to understand is how the general economy works and what you're trying to accomplish. And this might be getting a little bit um, off, more off topic, but this is what I was saying as far as um, people need to understand why they're setting up the policy. You know, are they setting up for immediate cash value for that first two or three years? And they say, I don't care about the death benefit. And I don't care about long-term growth. Most people, most people only focus on those first two or three years. Mm -hmm. And they believe the illustration is going to be exactly the way it is in the next 30, 40, 50 years. And, uh, you know, I have dividend um, rates that go back to 1990 on most of our companies. And they were paying 9.5% back in 1990. And now they're paying anywhere between five and six point two percent. These the same companies. So to be naive and say, "Oh yeah, look at that illustration is going to be perfect going forward," is very naive. You know, you really have to look at these as a snapshot of just what's happening right now, and then you determine that how much risk you want to take going into the future. Absolutely. And um, we have a Dane Jones said, thank you for that, um, that answer on that question as well. Yeah, so thanks, Dane. So let's go ahead and jump into then if you are in a position of maybe you are 65, maybe you are 70, and you're thinking, okay, I know that privatized banking is a way that I can store cash, I can build cash value that I can use. And maybe I'm using that money to invest in cash flowing assets like real estate, or maybe I'm using it for just think of it in general as an emergency and opportunity fund, this pool of cash that you can use for whatever and whenever you need to. So I'm building that asset. I also have this death benefit that will pay out if I die today, or if I die 30 years from now or a hundred years from now. So we're looking at this very complex and multifaceted asset that gives you a lot of advantages in so many different areas of your life. But if you're in the position of saying, well, I'm a senior right now, how can I actually use privatized banking in multiple areas of my life? How will this really benefit me? Because a lot of times I think we talk about privatized banking as this thing that you use maybe if you are younger and you're wanting to build up a real estate portfolio and build cash flowing assets and all those things do take time. And so we want to bring one specific episode where we pull a lot of threads together that we've talked about on many different shows about specifically how you can use privatized banking, especially if you are in your senior years. So Bruce, let's go ahead and just kind of jump into- Oh, I got all kinds of examples. So- Let's go ahead. So the 72-year-old I was talking about, she was mainly doing it for the transfer of her IRA. Well, we can talk about this later in the later episode, but she was basically- she was sitting on several hundred thousand dollars of IRA money. When I meet, uh, probably close to six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. She had a really nice pension, and she only had re required minimum distributions. She wasn't even living off of this the the um, the IRA money. 
her, she was actually in a lower tax bracket than her two very successful children. So we started talking about um, transfer of assets from one generation to the next. And we'll go over there's the Secure Act of 2017 actually changed the way uh, tax deferred money is is passed upon uh, passed down to the next generation. So we'll we'll save that for another podcast. But she she saw the advantages of actually paying it at not only her tax rates but that the tax rates today. But then you know that's the reason she did it. But then we also talked about privatized banking. Now. She is, she's 72 years old. She has no interest in real estate. She has no interest in starting a business to access capital. But she did say, hey, you know, every year I go on to this dental trip down in uh, South America. And I asked her, I said, how do you pay for it? She goes, oh, you know, I don't, I just put $500 a month away in my savings account from my normal uh, cash flow awareness. And um, I just build it up to about $6,000. And then I go on a trip and then I just build it up for the next year again. And I said, well, what we could do is borrow against this policy. And then you just take that same $500 instead of putting it in your savings account, just uh, put it back to pay against the loan uh, in her policy. And so she didn't, she was like thrilled because uh, she could keep, she could actually put more money into it, the paid up additions and get the death benefit actually higher for her children. So mm-hmm. that that's an example. Another one that was a 71-year-old actually used it to buy rental property. Now, I just said that most people don't want a, the risk of rental property in their 70s, but they were buying rental property for their, their children to live in. Oh, nice. So what they did was they, they borrowed them against the cash value to buy the rental property, and then they use the in they they charge reasonable rent to their children to live there because the children couldn't come up with the down payment and their credit score wasn't uh, good enough to actually get a a mortgage from a traditional bank. So my my client actually then took the cash flow from the rental property to pay the loan back. So, and then nice. another one that I've had. Uh, They've done this several times. They've actually um, took the cash value and loaned it to their children to buy automobiles. Mm. And then the children pay it back. Now, So like I'm, a family bank. Like a family visit. bank. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just like the, per, the, the previous one was a family bank. And people, people say this to, all, to me all the time when we start talking about this. Well, I know my kids, they'll never pay me back. And I say, well, that's fine because... That's, that means the death benefit is going to stay lower because they have a loan against. If they pay it back, the death benefit actually gets uh, recharged. So, you know, it's their choice um, whether they pay you back or they're going to get the same amount. That's know, a really future. good perspective of sharing that because it, the total death benefit stays the same, but the net death benefit is what would be Correct. shrunk. So the total death benefit remains the same and then they just take out the loan when they pay out those death benefit proceeds. And so the experience that the children would have would then be less de- death benefit payout. So the question is, do I want to repay the loan so that I can have a higher payout later? Or do I not repay the loan and just get a lower payout later? That's a, a great way to think about it in their interest. Right. And, and then the other thing, I don't think people understand this, but all the insurance companies will do it. 
we set it up so that the loan repayment actually comes out of the children's bank accounts. So it comes, it can be directly debited from the bank account, just like any other financial institution. So when people say, oh, I'm not going to get my money back uh, because they feel like all oh, their kids are going to write them a check every month. No, it's just going to come out of their uh, bank account and go right into their privatized banking life insurance policy. It's amazing how much automating anything can just make it so much easier. And you don't have to think about it. It's not something that they have to remember or they have to put a reminder on their phone or their calendar or whatever. It's just something that's going to automatically happen. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. Now, what about for the person who might be putting privatized banking in place and maybe they're not thinking of passing the legacy as much? That's always going to be a huge advantage, being able to pass on the death benefit to your children and your heirs. But let's think about what it does in their own life. Now, we've had numerous different shows where we've talked about income strategies, but we want to really talk about this is more so a hub um, podcast or hub episode where we're going to mention a lot of things and we'll bring the details in future shows. So say, for instance, you have a whole life policy in place on yourself, which is building cash value. Say you are in your 60s or 70s. Now, the, one of the ways that you can use this is to increase your own income by maximizing social security, maximizing your pension, and even by allowing it to be a buffer asset that you can take income from during years that your other portfolio may have down years. Bruce, can you talk a little bit about what that means to maximize social security income? And then we can use that same concept for the pension. Yes. And um, of course, you know, we do have disclosures at the beginning, at the end of these podcasts. But once I think uh, anything we say, you have to get checked by, you know, a a tax professional. I am in a, I can talk about um, pension maximization and volatility buffer because I am an investment advisor also. But um, so basically social security is taxed at the maximum tax rate is 85%. Um, Social Security used to not be taxed at all, but it's it's taxed at a maximum of eighty five percent. So if you if you have ten thousand dollars of uh, Social Security income, you only have to put eighty five percent of it as your taxable income. Under certain situations, as long as you're like example, if you're married filing jointly, as long as your income stays below. $44,000 on your tax return. So that would be, you know, the normal taxable income such as W2 income, 1099 income, interest income, dividend income, business income, so on and so forth. Um, as long as you stay under $44,000, then you do get some additional benefit of lowering that from 85 to a lower percentage. If you can get it all the way down um, to under 32,000, then you actually can pay 0% on your social security income. So now when you have 10,000, they actually put a 10,000 on the front of your tax return and they don't carry anything over. They actually put a zero into the income column. Now, many people might be out there saying, well, yeah, but I got to live, you know? I have to have money to live. Well, that's where Roth IRAs, where you don't have to put on your um, your uh, tax return as income, and then also 
um, cash valued life insurance proceeds, both the dividends and when you take a loan against it. So if you want to then live off the interest and dividends that you're making in your policy or taking a loan against the policy, that those also do not go on the tax return. So and the reason they don't go on your tax return is with a Roth IRA, you've already paid the tax on correct. that money. So your distribution is not taxed. So this is not some scam or some um, tax um, evasion scheme. This is no. the way it's that in it the tax works. Code. Right. So this is a um, way that you've already paid the tax on that money. So now this is the tax treatment of that asset when you use it. And same with the life insurance, you pay tax on the premium before you put the dollars into the life insurance policy. And then that's growing tax deferred for you. And yes, when you use your loans or withdrawals up to your cost basis of what you've put in, mm-hmm. you do not pay tax on that money. And then it's also the tax or the um, death benefit is also t- income tax free to your heirs. But we're not talking about that portion. We're really talking about how you can use your life insurance money and not have that affect your taxable income. Right. And that's social security maximization. The next topic is pension maximization. And I have a lot of experience with this because we, we have done a lot of work with the public school retirement system in St. Louis with federal employee retirement system, which I'm sure you understand with your husband working Mm -hmm. um, and with other first responder pensions. And what happens in any of these pensions, um, you have the opportunity at the time you retire to take what's called a single life pension. I'm going to make this very easy for people to understand. So we're just going to use $5,000 a month. You can take $5,000 a month. And if you have a loved one that you want to leave your pension to in case you predecease them, you can leave it to them. um, But you have to take what we call a haircut. You know, you have to, you you don't get $5,000. So a single life would be $5,000, but if you predecease your spouse, they get zero. Okay, and a lot of people say, well, I don't want to do that because I want to protect my spouse. The, the, I'm only going to use one example. Usually there's between three and six uh, potential examples. I'm just going to use one example for simplicity's sake. So the next possible one is you can take what's called the 100% option which means they will get 100% of the pension you leave behind. So a lot of people say, well, I'm going to choose that one. That'd be great. I want my spouse to get 100%. And we say, well, but you have to give up 10% of your particular um, number that year. So 5,000, now you only get get 4,500. Many of these people that are retiring with these pensions are retiring at in their early 50s, their middle 50s, even at age 60. So let's just think about this. Uh, that's $6,000 a year for potentially your life expectancy for a 55-year-old. It could be you know, as high in your 80s. So 30, 30 years, I'm just using 30 because it's easy math. So you're giving up $150,000 on the premise that you may die more quickly than your spouse. Now, which are all complete unknowns and you have no control over what actually happens with that. So you're giving up income for a complete unknown. Correct. And you're also giving up the opportunity cost on $150,000 for 30 years. Oh, absolutely. So, so if we just use the rule of 72 and you get uh, 4% on that, 
So four into uh, 72 is somewhere around um, 18. Well, it is 18. So in 18 years, that $150,000 would have doubled. So now we're at 300,000 and then we still have, we still have another uh, 12 years. So it's not going to quite double, but it's going to be really, really close at only 4%. Okay. So they're not just giving up 150,000. They're giving up probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 that they could have used to invest or to save or so on and so forth. So what we do is we come in and say, okay, what if we took that $500 and you're still going to live off of $4,500 a month, just like you were planning on, but we're going to take the, we're going to take the 5,000 single life. We're going to take the $500. We're going to place it along with other assets because this doesn't work if it's only the $500 Mm -hmm. because the pension system has literally billions of dollars. It can, it can actually invest. You only have your $500 plus other assets. So you have to look at the complete financial picture strategy. You can reposition other assets to a specially designed whole life insurance policy. And now at death, yes, the spouse doesn't get, they don't, they do not get the $4,500 a month they were expecting, but they're going to be written a tax-free check for a million, million and a half, $2 million in their their pension maximization. So they're maximizing their pension by, instead of taking $4,500, they're taking $5,000. Now, Rachel, right. that just that alone is is very appealing to people. But oh, absolutely. Let's talk about the next generation. So example, a person works really hard, 30, 35, 40 years in a pension system. They build up, they could have gotten a higher salary, but in lieu of a higher salary, they took a benefit of a pension. Mm-hmm. And then when they die, it goes to the spouse if that's the way they choose. But then when the spouse dies, they cut out the next generation because the next generation gets no payout of a pension, a monthly pension. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that makes logical sense because the pension system can't just keep paying, you know, the heirs over and over and over. They'll, they'll well, either it's go designed broke or- to be, income for the person who was working when they're retired. And yes, it could help your spouse because they were surviving on the income, but yes, it's not a continuous perpetual wealth system. Correct. And, and what makes this appealing to a lot of people is like, well, now they get the, the, the death benefit uh, payout from the insurance company. And if that particular spouse doesn't use it all throughout their life, it gets passed on to the next generation. So that's why we call it pension maximization. So you can maximize uh, how your financial strategy gets passed along, not only while you're living, but to the next generation. I love that. And I think just in a really small encapsulated way of saying that it's thinking, how do I have the most income today from the pension, but also protect the ability for my spouse to have as much income and assets as possible if I die early? And so you're getting the best of both worlds. You're not having to give up one or the other of those. And so just 
it's very interesting how having a whole life insurance policy allows you to do these other strategies in your life. That's why we talk about it being like a golden key in a way that unlocks so many other things in your life. It's not just about having the life insurance, the life insurance payout and the cash value I can use right now, but it's what that cash value and the death benefit allow you to do in so many other areas. Now, one other thing that we have talked about before in an episode with Dr. Wade Fow is the idea that you can use a strong, um, secure, stable asset like life insurance to provide income during years when your portfolio may have losses. And especially if you're at, if your investment portfolio is down in a particular year and you're taking income off of that, it's very difficult to recover back to a position where you're not shrinking the principal over time. And so having another asset like life insurance that has cash value that you can use to supplement your income in that down year allows you then to preserve your investment portfolio to a position where you're not having to be concerned about running out of money as quickly. Yeah. And um, I, I recently talked to Dr. Wade Fowl because he get it's amazing. He actually works for a registered investment advisory firm. He he was not even a he's not even an insurance person. He just does the technical analysis of it and he gets attacked all the time by people that say, "Well, you you only do this because you you like to sell life insurance." And he doesn't even sell life insurance. <laughs> I find this very interesting, but That's Dr. Awesome. Wade says no. The, the fact of the matter is, is that if you have a place where you have, you can grab cash instead of liquidating your investments, your stocks, bonds, mutual funds, or other investments, even if it's real estate, so on and so forth, that it allows your portfolio to recover in those, those down years. And he's actually um, published a white paper on this that he says he likes to use whole life insurance because it actually gives you permission to spend other of your assets, whether it's a brokerage account or savings account, CDs, so on and so forth, it gives you permission to actually spend those assets because you now know the, that the buckets will be refilled up again upon your passing. And that's why, because some people say, well, you can do the same thing, just put the money in your, put the money in your savings account. And that's true because if you had a lot of cash built up in your savings account, you could then live off of that while you're waiting for your investments to re- to actually uh, recover. There's two You could, problems. but there's no death benefit. There's no well, death benefit. And you're also losing opportunity cost here. As we've talked about on many shows, mm-hmm. if you put it into the whole life insurance and you borrow against it, you're still getting interest and dividends on the money that you placed into the to the uh, the policy. So he- yes, The reason he, for that. Oh, go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, he uses this as a volatility bumper. Yeah. And the reason for the fact that you're not giving up that opportunity cost is that your cash value continues to grow with dividends and interest, even when you have a loan against it. Whereas if you're putting money into your bank account, you pull it out, it stops growing at that point and you have to reset your compounding down to zero. Mm -hmm. So when you mentioned it is a permission to spend other assets, I also like to think that it is the permission. If you have whole life insurance in place, you have this cash value that you can access and use. And if you have other assets, you can spend them down completely, not just withdrawing only the interest, you can withdraw the principal and interest, not have to require that money to also be your legacy to leave to your children. And the life insurance is what allows your legacy to continue. So you're isolating the jobs that you're having your money do 
which then allows you to have more income during your life and still have that legacy to pass on. So just another way of thinking about using the life insurance. And then um, Bruce, can you mention real quickly as well, the, um, the way that an accelerated death benefit could be, or rider could be used if you have a whole life policy. Sure. Um, let me piggyback on what you just said also is that um, the, the investment, um, the investment industry, which I'm a part of, they have these Monte Carlo um, calculations and people a lot of times say, well, yeah, I don't want to just live off the interest of my money, but I can also start living off some of the principal as I get older. And, and we actually have some calculations that you can say there's an 86% chance or there's a 90% chance that you will run out of money at age 95. You know, and people say, well, I'm comfortable with that. Um, and so that is what you were talking about. Now, as far as the accelerated death benefit rider that comes with all these specially designed life insurance contracts is if you can get a certification from, from doctors that you're, you are going to actually die within the next 12 months, then there's calculations where they will actually front you, um, a lot of the death benefit in advance of your death. I call it a bucket list rider. So you have things on your bucket list that you would like to share. You have a terminal illness um, and you would like to share it with your family. Um, this is where you can actually access your death benefit before you die to fulfill your bucket list or just spend more quality time with your family um, because you have very limited time on this earth. Yeah. The reason I like to even bring that up is just that you have access to potentially use even more than your cash value during your lifetime. And so that's something that might be on your mind as you're thinking, how could I potentially use this towards the end of my life? We always recommend not to use the life insurance cash value as a primary source of income. That's something that I think a lot of other people do talk about using, and I'm not comfortable with that idea of using it as a primary income source in any case, just because there's so many unknowns in the future and you really want to preserve and hold this asset as long as possible. It can be used as a last resort though for pulling income if you run out of other assets and just knowing that you have the cash available in this safety net, it allows you to just have so much more peace of mind. If you had a large expense that arose and you need capital to pull from somewhere, there's just so many more opportunities that you have if you have that cash value in a life insurance policy. Right. And also you also have a terminal illness and critical illness riders that come with this also. So long-term care, they can't call it long-term care because by def definition, it's not long-term care, although you can use it exactly like that. Uh, so they're, they're called terminal or critical illness riders. They work very similar so that if you cannot do two of the daily activities of life, which are bathe yourself, um, locomotion, uh, close yourself, uh, clothe yourself, um, actually feed yourself, so on and so forth. If you cannot, you can only do two of those uh, six, then you can actually access this for care to uh, pay for care. Now, this has become very, very um, prevalent lately because of healthcare costs skyrocketing, long-term care costs have skyrocketed. So a lot of people have actually paid into long traditional long-term care policies 
and have actually either had to stop paying into them and lose the benefit or pull down the benefits so far that it really doesn't do a lot for them. When you have a critical illness or terminal illness rider on these uh, contracts, then you can actually say to yourself, okay, yes, I don't have a traditional long-term care rider. I would have to actually pay for long-term care with other one other pieces of my assets, whether it's my IRAs, my brokerage account, my savings account. But if I pull it from my life insurance policy, that bucket once again will get filled back up at the time of death. And so it's a way to have peace of mind during the long-term, uh, excuse me, I can't call it long-term care, terminal or critical illness mm-hmm. uh, situations that people go through when, they're, when they get older. You know, Bruce, it's interesting. Um, I was thinking about when you mentioned filling back up, it made me rem- remember that also a income strategy that somebody can use during later years of life could be a reverse mortgage. And what's interesting about that is if you're thinking, I want to be able to pass my home on to my kids, often the the more um, flexible strategy would be for you to be able to use the equity in your home for income or cash, and then have a position where your life insurance then fills up the bucket so that your kids would get this payout. And if they wanted to purchase the home back, they'd be able to do that if that was part of your plan. It just allows you, again, another income strategy. Uh, And I feel like we've probably covered the majority of the strategies that you can use, but really big picture, if we really step back from this whole thing, the the realization is that no matter how old you are, you have a need for a place to store cash. You have a need for somewhere to be able to access and use cash if you have a large expense or if you want to go on vacation or if you're in a position where somehow maybe the need for income in later years is higher than you'd expected and your cash is not earning, your, your investments are not earning the returns that you were hoping for. So wherever you find yourself, I would just really hope that this episode would give you a lot of peace and confidence realizing that there are so many opportunities for you to be able to use well the privatized banking strategy and that you're not too old. So, yeah, I think, I think it comes down to strategies are more important than product. And unfortunately, unfortunately we continue in this industry to say, look, Oh, my product's a lot better than your product. And I have a couple corny examples. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, um, what would you rather have? Tiger Woods golf clubs or Tiger Woods swing. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the golf clubs are like the products you'd really like to have a swing. Now, if you're artistic, I would say, what would you like to have? Kenny G's um, actual uh, ability to play instruments or would you like to have his instruments? Right. Or, or if you're Pablo Picasso, would you rather have Pablo Picasso's eye for art or would you like to have his oil paints and canvas? Right. We always seem to be talking about the the oil paints and canvas. We're talking about the 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 horns and we're talking about the golf clubs. And what you really need is the strategies that represents the talents of the people that you're working with. Oh, that's so, so good. And what a beautiful analogy to leave this on, corny as it may be, Bruce. Um, <laughs> I love the example. And I think it just really um, helps us to understand that really the ability that we have based on the strategies and the mindset is far exceeds any tactical uh, product that we can have in our hand. So 
Now, if you've been listening to this show and something has piqued your interest, you have questions for us, we'd love to hear your questions. You can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or you can leave us a voicemail by going to themoneyadvantage.com and you can click send us a voicemail at the top of the website on the right-hand side. Also, we would love to let you know that we exist to help you do the most with your money. If you have questions about privatized banking or alternative investments or cash flow strategies, and you're in a position where you just want all of your financial life to be coordinated, to work together, to maximize your capabilities the way that we've been talking about today, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have you book a call with our advisors and our advisor team. You can do that at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. Or if you just go to our main page, there's a link right on the front page that you can click right to access our calendar and get booked for your call today. So thank you so much for listening to this show today. We help We hope that this has been helpful to you in navigating your personal financial journey. And please remember in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.